This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. So my name is John Sharbach. I am a member down the street at Providence Church. Uh, I also lead a community group there. And I, I recently had a medical procedure done, so I'm hopped up on steroids right now. And so if I get really, really fiery, you can blame those. Um, well, let's, well, let's just start off today. Uh, we're in the book of Mark, and we've been working through it uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're going to pick up today in Mark 35, or <laughs> Mark 4. <laughs> I have a regular person Bible. Uh, Mark 4, verse 35. Um, so let's just start there. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he, let's say Jesus, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, Also, before we start, um, ask God, uh, Lord, would you please send your spirit to give us illumination that you would... Uh, please plant your word in our hearts. Uh, please give us obedient hearts to receive it and to accept it and to obey it. Uh, we, we pray that you would pull back the veil to help us see your spiritual reality clearly. And we hope that you would shine your light, the light of the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts and give us a vision of your greatness, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, and your glory. So that last, that last question um, in the text, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's sort of like, that's actually kind of the core question of the first eight chapters of Mark. Who then is this? And Mark gives us the answer, and it's not, like it's, it's not a secret, he gives us the answer in the first verse of the first chapter, that this is the Christ, the Son of God. But the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the Christ and the Son of God? And Mark is sort of, unrolling that answer slowly for us over the course of the book. And Jesus is unrolling that answer for us over the course of the book. Um, And the reason is, I think, that you can't really put new wine in old wineskins. You can't hit these big theological ideas and shove them into your old categories. First, what you need to do is start to deconstruct and reshape the old categories before you can fill them with new content. Otherwise, we'll just kind of shape Jesus into whoever we want him to be. And so, there's always a not, and there's always a but. Jesus is not this, but Jesus is that. And that, I think, is kind of the, the story of the first eight chapters of Mark. And so what answer or answers is Mark starting to unroll for us here? Uh, well, there's a lot of different answers. We're going to focus on three in the interest of time. Uh, number one, that Jesus is a missionary. Number two, that Jesus is trusting. And number three, 
that Jesus is trustworthy. He's a missionary, he's trusting, and he's trustworthy. So let's dive right in. Jesus is a missionary. He's been sent by his father on a mission. And so the context here is that he's been, he's been sort of like hanging out in, in Galilee, which is sort of to the north of Israel or the northern part of Israel, and he's been preaching and he's been healing and he's been teaching and he's been cast, he's doing all these great things and all these people are coming to him and listening to him and we've just spent a whole chapter of him just teaching this big crowd that's gathered around him. And, you know, he, if you were like me, he might be content to stay there. He's having a big impact. You know, he's loving people well. He's doing good works. He's building a really big church. Um, but, but notice what happens in verse 35. He says, On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. This is one notable aspect of Jesus' ministry. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, but in all, really in all the Gospels, that he keeps moving around. He doesn't really stay in one place. And uh, we don't, you know, he could stay in Galilee and he could raise a big army and then kind of march on Jerusalem. He could, uh, we know from John's Gospel that he could just call down 12 legions of angels, cast the Romans out, restore Israel to their Solomonic glory. Um, he could make Galilee a sort of heaven on earth where there's no disease, there's no sickness, everyone's being nice to each other, uh, there's no sadness, there's, there's not even any death. Um, but yet we see that whenever he draws this large crowd, the crowd kind of want to make him king, kind of wants to make him king, and he's kind of like, no, nah, I don't think so, and he goes, he goes somewhere else. And the question is, why? Well, we actually don't get the answer in this, in this text. This text just raises the question for us. But one of the texts that does answer that question for us is uh, in Luke chapter 4, in the second half of verse 42 and 43. And that's kind of describing a similar situation where um, the, the, it says, and the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was sent for a purpose. He's a missionary, which just means sent. Um, and so let's take a moment to meditate upon this idea that he was sent for this purpose, and that means he has to keep leaving these towns. Um, we have this old category, maybe, of, of the Messiah, this Jesus guy is going to come. He's going to make us you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's going to restore Israel to its glory. Um, things are going to be great. And it's almost as if we're kind of thinking of Jesus sort of as this great sage or this great problem solver or even a sort of spiritual hospital where he goes around, he's dispensing the healing, and everyone's like, oh, great. Um, and, and we want to try to change his focus. We want to take his focus... Um, off of his father's mission, this idea that he's sent to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, and instead we want to take and kind of sort of force them into our own little agendas, um, our own little lives, maybe our, our politics or our plans and our designs, that we want to make, we want to be the ones to set the agenda. We want to say, no, you stay here, you don't worry about that gospel thing, you stay here and keep fixing us. Um, and so that's the old category. What's the new category? It's not, it's not that, but, w- but what is it? Well, the, the but is that Jesus came um, to set us free from sin, Satan, and death. Uh, so that he can return one day, and rather than creating this little pocket of the kingdom of heaven in Galilee, he can, create the, he can, he can recreate the whole universe and the whole kingdom of heaven with this great host of redeemed believers. 
Um, Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And here he's quoting from Isaiah 61. He says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, so yes, Jesus is, uh, he's, he's, he's setting us free, he's giving sight to the blind, he's liberating the oppressed. Yes, all that's absolutely true. But notice how he's doing it according to this, these verses. He's doing it by proclaiming the good news, the good news of the gospel, the very power of God for salvation. And so it's not just about this world, it's not about kind of what we can see and what we can feel and what we can touch and what we can influence. Um, It's not even about like people or politics necessarily, it's about battling the powers of sin, Satan, and death. And so this this is what the Apostle Paul says about it in Galatians, or Ephesians, chapter 6. Verse 12, he says, uh, we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And here I think rulers and authorities means like the spiritual rulers, the spiritual authorities, because of what comes next. He says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, um, David, David Brainerd was an 18th century American Puritan. And he's living kind of at the time of the Great Awakening, which is Jonathan Edwards or whatever. I think Jonathan Edwards is, is you know, about a generation older than him. Um, and his, his life was characterized by, by great suffering. So at, at nine, his, uh, father, his, his father dies. At 14, his mother dies. Uh, gloriously, at 21, he's converted to Christ. And shortly thereafter, enrolls in, uh, at, at Gale, which is a seminary at the time. And you know, a year later, he contracted tuberculosis, which is a very serious disease even today, and it was much more serious back then. Um, and so he had to take some time off from Yale, and he came back to Yale. Uh, and then he was, you know, shortly thereafter, he was expelled because he was too zealous for the gospel. He was like, causing, causing problems for them. Um, and he was this very gifted preacher. Everyone seemed to understand that. But you know, when you get expelled from Yale in the, in, the, in, the, in the 18th century, it precludes you from being a minister anywhere. Like, you're legally forbidden from being a minister in Connecticut. And so, uh, he, eventually he gets commissioned to go be a missionary instead. So God kind of interrupt, interrupts his plans and sends him off to be a missionary instead to, um, to, to, to certain Native Americans in the area. And uh, unlike a lot of his contemporaries, he actually has a great deal of success ministering to the Native Americans. Um, he seems to have a, a very tender heart for them. And uh, he ends up, for example, establishing a church among the Delaware of 130 people, which is pretty sizable. And so because of this great success and faithfulness, the word kind of gets out. And now all these like, you know, um, con- congregations back home are like, oh no, come on back, be our minister. You know, like, okay, you've proven yourself over there, you know, with that, but we, okay. And he's like, well, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna stay here and I'm gonna continue doing my missionary work. And he, he chose not to return to his homeland, but instead he chooses to continue proclaiming the gospel. And, and listen to what he says about why he, he did it. He writes this in his diary. He says, you know, I, I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstance or business in life. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen, which just means unbeliever. Um, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself 
with the hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintances, or enjoying earthly comforts. In other words, he chooses to pour out his life in service of others, in service of God's gospel, and, and saving, helping save these people, and being an instrument for God saving these people, really. Um, and he forsakes the promise of worldly comforts and worldly companionship. And, and so, so what do we do with these two examples? We have, with Jesus, we have, you know, kind of David, David Brainerd illustrating this a little bit. Um, well, I think the, here, here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that we don't let other things crowd out our zeal for proclaiming the gospel. Um, that we all have some sort of worldly agendas or some sort of worldly goal. Maybe it's a personal goal. Uh, maybe it's the goal like getting the job or getting the spouse or getting to know the right people. You know, or maybe it's a good goal, like a, um, you know, like this is like a political goal, not political in the sense of partisan, but political in the sense that it affects all of us. Um, maybe it's, it's helping the poor. Maybe it's liberating people from political or legal oppression. Maybe it's helping to teach people to see evil for evil and good for good. And I chose those things because those are specifically called out as good things in the Bible. Those are good goals in the Bible that we should be working towards. But they're good goals, just like healing the sick and teaching about the kingdom, just like Jesus is doing in Galilee. But I think this text is showing us in part that these are not the ultimate goal. Or rather, these goals will be more fully and perfectly accomplished by God and bringing in his kingdom than they will be by us trying to build our own version of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so if we let them become ultimate things, they'll start to crowd out and distract us from the gospel and the, the real work of God in salvation. And so we need to be willing to prioritize the gospel and to keep moving forward to other towns, so to speak. Um, and so like Jesus, we need to keep holding on to these things, yes, but holding them in right priority. And we need to, like Jesus, we need to keep the gospel preeminent. And that means, yes, pursuing righteousness, especially the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And yes, it means working against suffering, especially the eternal suffering that comes from separation from God. And yes, it means working against oppression, especially the spiritual oppression of sin, Satan, and death. And so how do we keep the gospel preeminent in our lives? Um, well, look at, listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Uh, the author of the Hebrews writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so what I want to pull out of these verses is, number one, that our default posture, I think, is to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That sin kind of comes in whispers and, hey, you know, just, just focus on this. Don't worry so much about that. Like, people are weird over there at the church. Just, you know, like maybe go on Sundays and check the box, but like, hey, the real stuff's over here. Um, that's the default state of our heart. And one of the ways that the Bible identifies to combat that is life together. That, you notice he says, exhort one another, right? That, that it may be that today you're having a really bad day and I'm having a great day, or vice versa, you know, in terms of our relationships with, in terms of our, our focus on the things that really matter, on setting our minds on the things that are above, and we can exhort each other. And this is not like a, this is not like a, oh, we're going to do this once a week sort of thing. This is our, we're going to commit our lives to the rhythms of the, the daily and weekly rhythms of the Christian life. We're going to saturate ourselves with God's truth and with other people that believe God's truth. 
and those people are going to help encourage and exhort us and, and, and carry us through to the end. That these people are instruments that God is using to preserve us on the right path. So, so this is sort of the missionary work of Jesus. He's going to continue moving to this next town. Right? He's got some plans got on, the, on the east on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's sent by his father to proclaim the good news, so he sets off to continue doing that. But first, we have to get across the Sea of Galilee, which brings us to the next point, which is that uh, Jesus is trusting. That Jesus knows that his heavenly father has a plan for him, and he trusts him. So to set the scene, they set out, and then in verse 37, it says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. This is not a good situation to be in. Obviously, like you're in this tiny little fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. There's apparently pretty, pretty strong storms there, and it's filling up, and oh, what's going on? And so, but notice how Jesus is reacting to this in verse 38. It says, but he was in the stern, which is to say the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And so, yeah, look, it's important and it's probably the main point of the text, yes, that Jesus can calm the storm. Um, and so we'll get there. But, but notice what kind of what he's doing before that. He's asleep in the back on a cushion. He's so calm, he's so unaffected by what's going on, that he's just, he's just asleep. Uh, he's not, hey, here's my chance. I'm going to prove to the disciples I'm the son of God. I'm going to go do some great stuff. Uh, it's not, hey, don't worry. I know this storm is really bad, but you've got me and I'm, you know, I'm God. So like, I'll, fix, I'll fix this problem for us. Uh, he's so unconcerned about what's going on that he can't even really be bothered to wake up. And he's not unconcerned merely because he, I think he knows that he has the authority uh, over the storm. He seems to be unconcerned because he doesn't even think that the storm is really a problem or really a threat. He seems to be saying that they shouldn't even be afraid of the storm at all. I say that in part because of verse 40, which says, he said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And so the question is, they're afraid, obviously, and it seems like for good reason. Why is Jesus not afraid? Well, I think he, in part because he knows that, that fear is, is fleeting. Let's take a look uh, briefly, and it'll be up on the screen, so you have to turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. He says, uh, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear those things. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Everything that happens in this world is in God's control. God has absolute control over everything. A sparrow doesn't fall from the sky unless apart from the will of God. A raindrop, let alone a storm, doesn't fall from the sky apart from the, from the will of God. Every situation, every storm, every setback, every suffering is part of God's plan. That he's molding it and he's redirecting it for our good. This is not to say that like, 
you know, God is like working all this evil in the world, no. Uh, we know from like Genesis chapter 50, for example, uh, where Joseph has been sold into slavery and has led this really like harsh, suffering-filled life because of the sin of his brothers. Um, but he says, what does he say? He says, well, you meant it for evil to his brothers, but God meant it for good. So we have these people that have committed this great evil against him. Um, and they're not, not that they're not responsible, but that God is using this and God means this and is it's superintending this process for our, our good. So this is, here we have this old category that God's going to just fix every difficulty for us. He's going to keep us from suffering. He's going to help us lead our best life now. You know, there'll be oil everywhere. Um, kind of to use the language, like there's, you know, milk, honey, there's oil, there's all this stuff. Um, and th- that's part of the old category that he's beginning to do away with. The, the, the new category is, well, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what do we know? Well, we know that to live is gain, right? Because we get to do, continue in our fruitful ministry uh, with others. We know that to die is Christ, meaning we get to be eternally united with our Savior. Uh, we know that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the, with the glory that's to be revealed to us. We know that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we know that for those who are united with Christ by faith, we have nothing to fear in this world. We, sh- we, 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 we do not fear what can merely kill you. Instead, fear the Lord only. So, back to David Brainer for a moment. At 28, he's having this great ministry, um, and his tuberculosis kind of flares back up, and so he has to leave the mission field entirely. And so he spends the next year of his life um, in Jonathan Edwards' home. So Jonathan Edwards is like a very prominent uh, 18th century American theologian. And he grew very close to Edwards' daughter, Jerusha. It's a great name. Uh, if you're considering what to name your daughter, Jerusha is a good one. Uh, they, so they get engaged, but they're actually never married because uh, shortly thereafter, at the age of 29, which is younger than me, and I think younger than a lot of you, uh, David Brainerd uh, dies. He goes to be with the Lord. And then shortly thereafter, Jerusha dies as well. And, and Jerusha is, I, I think, the, Jonathan Edwards, I think, had 12 children with, with his wife, Sarah, and I think Jerusha is the first one to have died. Uh, so this is kind of really, really hits him. And you know, so her, her father, Edwards, stops what he's working on. He's working on one of his seminal works, The Freedom of the Will, and he, he stops that, to edit David Brainerd's diary into a biography of David Brainerd. And so this biography that he, that he works on ends up being his most popular work. It's, his most reprinted work has been a continuous publication since it was written in the, in the 1800s until today. And it inspired people like John Wesley, uh, the great Methodist evangelist in England. It inspires people like Adoniram Judson, who's this great Baptist missionary to what is uh, then Burma, present-day Myanmar. And so, so God uses Brainerd in his life, yes, to convert hundreds of, of people uh, to his glory. And then God uses Brainerd's death, he died in the right place, in the right time, in the right way, to help save tens of thousands of people to God's glory. And so, what do we take away from this? Well, I think what we've heard what we take away from this is that we don't need to be afraid. For those of us who have faith in Christ, we don't need to be afraid. That God is working things together in our lives for some larger purpose. Maybe we can't see it yet, and maybe we won't see it till the end of the age. 
Um, and so we all have this, maybe this one thing, or maybe more than one thing, in my case, that we're afraid to lose. Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's our spouse, our friends, our status, our wealth, or our life. And there's something in life that makes us think, hey, if I didn't have that, I don't know how I could go on. And so I think the challenge, in part, is to identify that thing. And then turn that thing over to God in prayer. And pray the promises of God that he's given us back to him. Things like, hey, I I know that you're in control. And I know that you're working all things together for my good. And I know that you're using difficulty and trials to refine me like gold in a fire. And you're preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. And I know that in you, I can find real satisfaction and contentment and rest for my soul. And I know that if you decide to take something away from me, that it's because you love me and you know what's best for me. And I know that I can mourn calamity as one who has a sort of steadfast and eternal hope in the promises that you'll recompense us a hundredfold for everything we've lost. So please help me in my unbelief and give me the faith to see uh, your priorities and build my life upon them and upon your promises. Uh, So that when the rain falls and the storms come, and the winds blow and beat against you know, the house of my life, that it won't fall because it's founded upon the sure and steadfast rock of your son and its truth. And so that's what I think it means that Jesus is, is, is trusting. He, he, he knows that no matter what happens, a good God is in control. He's in control of the storm and he's working together all these purposes for his good. And so that maybe that probably feels, maybe you feel a little left, left a little like under the pile. Like, okay, so pour out my life for the sake of the gospel, uh, glorify God in my death. Okay, check, easy. Um, but that's actually not the whole story. That's not, I think, what's, what's being done here. So let's, let's keep moving into what actually is the main focus of this text. Okay, and everything else is just prelude. This is not... The question that the disciples ask is not, who then is this that leaves the crowds to go across the sea? It's not, who then is this that is so calm that he's asleep in the storm? These are, to be sure, these were remarkable qualities about Jesus, and they're probably not shared by a lot of us, um, but they are by themselves like a stoicism, right? Sort of grin and bear it. This is how life is. The question that they ask is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so the answer is that I think Jesus is, is, this is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is trustworthy. Um, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And so I really want to highlight the extent of his mastery over the wind and the sea. Look at verse 39. He says, And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Um, This is not like Storm from the X-Men using her superpowers to manipulate the weather. This is not Thor from Marvel, the god of thunder, calling down, you know, thunder and storms with his his superpowers. This is like, this is like the creator of all things, just saying, you're done, and it's stopping. As easily as if an author were to change the sentence in one of her stories with the stroke of a pen. That's how easily Jesus resolves this problem. And this is actually the first of four sort of Exodus-like miracles that we're going to see in the book of Mark. We have two water miracles, the calming of the storm and the walking on water. 
And then we have two bread miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And so these are sort of echoing God's greatest hits from the book of Exodus, that the parting of the Red Sea and providing manna to his people in the wilderness. It's highlighting God as protector and God as provider. And so one of the biblical ways that the, that the, one of the, ways that the biblical authors highlight and demonstrate God's mastery over creation is through his mastery over water. And for us as Americans, um, or really just people living in the modern era, frankly, this doesn't really make as much sense to us because we have a sort of romanticized relationship with water. Um, we're sort of a nautically inclined people. Uh, we have these great stories celebrating the adventure on the high seas. Uh, we have this great navy with these huge, massive floating fortresses that are essentially unsinkable. Um, we fought and won all these great maritime battles. Like The sea is like a cool place for us, but it's not a cool place for the Jews in Jesus' time. They're not a nautically inclined people. Uh, even, even the nautically inclined people in Jesus', in Jesus time like, frequently get shipwrecked, as we see in, in the book of Acts. Um, they're not really a seafaring people. It's sort of an uncharted, scary place. It's very unpredictable, uh, certainly uncontrollable. And they're not out there on the, you know, the USS Nimitz, this great aircraft. They're out there in this little tiny fishing boat you know, that's getting blown around and like a storm comes up and it's sinking. And so this, for, for the first century Palestine, uh, the seas are sort of a scary and a foreboding place. And, and to highlight God's mastery over the seas is to highlight his mastery over all things, I think. Which is, instantly, this is one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, when it talks about, like, there's no sea in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not to say there's no, like, water, probably. I think what it's highlighting is that this is another thing. The sea is a bad thing. You don't want that in your new heavens and your new earth. Okay. So, in the beginning, God forms the water, he separates the water, he organizes the water, and he fills the water with life. And then in the flood, he cleanses the earth with water, and then he promises to Noah never to do it again. In Exodus, he breaks the will of Pharaoh with storms and water miracles, and then he crushes the might of the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea to deliver his people, and then collapsing it back in on the, on the Egyptians. Uh, even in the Psalms, just, just a couple, couple of highlights from the Psalm, Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O God, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or even a little more on the nose, Psalm 107, verse 28 through 30. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves were hushed. Silence. Uh, and then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. And so the answer to this question in verse 41, who then is this that even the seas and the wind obey him, is I think that, that he's God. He's the creator of all things. He's the author of the story. He's the one who has mastery over the storms and the sea. And so the old category for the Messiah might be something like, well, the Messiah is the descendant of David. He's great David's greater son. He's going to be like an even greater you know, warlord like David was. Uh, maybe he'll be a wise sage like David, dispensing good advice or like Solomon about how to get by in the world. That's sort of the old category. And, and in this category, you're sort of teaching people how to cope with the world. Like, you know, the, the, the basic line is what, the Marlo, Marlo Stanfield? Uh, you know, you want things to be one way, but they're the other way. You want the, you know, so it's a very obscure wire reference. I don't recommend watching it necessarily. It's a fantastic show. Um, 
But, you know, you want the, the world to be a certain way, but it's not that way. The world is a separate way. And so you've got to get with the program of the world. That's kind of what worldly advice looks like. Here's how the world really works. Conform your life to that world. It's sort of helping us grin and bear whatever the world throws at us, help us tolerate suffering because we're powerless over it. Um, and the sooner we get on board with reality, the better things are going to be. That's the old category for what a great teacher looks like, for what a great ruler looks like. Um, what, what's the new category? That's the not. What's the but? Well, the but is he's the living God. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Uh, he's the one in whom we can trust. He's not teaching us how to create or to cope with reality. He's the master of reality. Not one hair will drop from our heads unless he consents to it. So he's the true God who condescended uh, to become a human so that, what's the purpose of that? So that he could partake in our suffering and in our death. Uh, why? So that he could deliver us from suffering and death. And so, you know, in Isaiah 25, it kind of talks about these new, these new this, these, like the promises of the new heavens and the new earth, and he talks about, hey, we'll feast with him um, on the feast of his rich food and his well-aged wine, which sounds kind of nice, um, and, but it gets better. He'll, he'll swallow up the veil of death that's spread across all nations, and he'll wipe away the tears from all our faces. And then we'll say, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So on, on the topic, I was just in, uh, this, is, this is a good segue, I promise. Uh, I was just in New Mexico and Colorado for two weeks on vacation. And New Mexico and Colorado are high and they're dry. And so they're sort of wreak havoc on the face area. Um, particularly the inside of the face. And so one night, like last Wednesday, my tooth started hurting. And so I, like, I iced it, took some Advil, and by morning it was fine. Okay? So I was like, okay, well, you know, not a big deal. A few days later it comes back, it starts hurting again, but now it's sort of more in my face area. Like less than my tooth area, more in my face area. And so I'm on WebMD and I'm diagnosing myself. Um, I have health insurance, but it's like, no. Uh, so I'm like, okay, what I've got is a sinus infection in my maxillary sinus, which is right there. It's a pretty good diagnosis if I do say so myself. It's not a big deal. It'll drain eventually. Um, you let your body take care of it. Just give it 10 days, is what WebMD told me. Uh, and so I'm there, and I'm popping Advil, and I'm using warm compresses, and I'm taking hot, steamy showers, and I'm like draining it with an eddy pot and all that stuff. And my face is not getting better, contrary to what they told me. My face is getting worse. My face is getting all swollen and puffy. Um, and I look grotesque, as David can, can uh, attest. And I'm sort of in constant pain at this point, around the clock. And so then around Thursday, on Thursday, a couple days ago, around noon, something starts going on with my gum. And so I'm like, okay, well, my, okay, maybe this is not a sinus issue, which can make your teeth hurt um, from pressure. Maybe it's a tooth issue, actually, after all. And so I call my dentist, and no luck, they're going out of town. Uh, so I call some endodontist, which is like a tooth doctor that gets in there and does root canals, basically. Um, and no luck, they're all whatever. So I'm like, here's what I'm going to do. I got, I got one friend, he's a rich people endodontist. He's the kind of endodontist that when you go into his office, they say, do you want sparkling or still water? <laughs> Okay, so I call my, I'm like, this, I, I gotta be safe, whatever, I'll call this guy up. And I'm like, ha, you know, I'm haggling with the office manager, hey, can you whatever, can you get me in, yeah, whatever. She's like, we can tell you what, we can get you in today at 4.30, not to fix anything, but just to take a look. I'm like, great, so I'll know if this is a real issue or not that I need to worry about. 
And so it's 4.30 on a Thursday, which if you know things about dentists, that's like the last dentist that I'm gonna get for at least three days, anywhere in, in the United States of America. Um, and, you know, I'm getting there just to evaluate the issue. It's gonna be about $300, $400 just to evaluate the issue. They're gonna scan my face. And so they, I get in there, they scan my face, and what do they discover? Well, I, apparently I have severely infected what is called my canine space, which is right next to my maxillary sinus, but it's the part above your, you know, I don't know, that tooth. Um, and the guy, the, you know, not my, 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 not my friend, but his dental assistant says, hey, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have waited this long. You know, if you waited any longer, um, things would have gotten really serious. You know, we could have had to replace the whole tooth, um, get you an implant, or it could have like kind of, the, when it, okay, it, it goes up into your eye and then to your brain, maybe, potentially. Um, so it could have been very, very serious. And so, what, and so my friend comes in and is like, all right, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm like sitting in there, okay, my examination is done, now I know. He's like, nope, he comes in here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drain it, we're going to clean it out, we're going to fill it with calcium hydroxide, which he describes as the A-bomb of, of disinfectant in my tooth. We're going to fill it up, and then we're going to come back in a week and we're going to give you a root canal. So bam, he's working on me, and he's like, he's like digging in his hands, and they're, I'm, looking, I'm looking at them, and they're like, so I had kind of like, you know, shaky hands, whatever, too much caffeine. This guy's got like rock solid hands. They're just totally still, totally rock solid, um, steady. And so he's digging around in my mouth, and he's poking holes in things, and suctioning things out, and drilling holes and stuff, and stuffing things where things don't belong to be stuffed. And um, it's not really a pleasant experience for me at all, but it's, but it's this great joy knowing that uh, he's healing me. Uh, it's, it's, it's not pleasant, let's be clear about that. Uh, and afterwards, my face is way more jacked up than it was. It's way bigger. Uh, this entire left side of my face is like paralyzed, so I kind of have that Harrison's forward smile going like, eh. um, but, you know, it was, it, but, but, but it was also, I have faith that, okay, seeing this guy's steady hands, I, and the fact that he's got sparkling and still water, that he knows what he, he probably knows what he's doing, and so I can trust in him. And so then we start talking about the bill. And he's like, well, whatever, we'll give you the friends and family discount. I've known you for a long time. And, uh, and then it turns out insurance is going to take care of it anyway. And so I walk out of there without paying a dime. I go to the rich people in the dentist and walk out without paying a dime, which is a great trade. And so this is sort of like the grace of God in the gospel. Okay, now we're coming to the real point. Uh, that it, God is in some ways, in, okay, great. This metaphor does not stand on all fours, so don't take me to task over it. But he's like the skillful surgeon operating on a patient. And my best efforts, Advil, warm compresses, you know, neti pots, whatever, didn't really do anything. They didn't do anything at all. And if anything, they made it, made it worse. Like, hey, you, want, you have an infection, make it moist and hot. Um, <laughs> keep your fever low. But, um, but he, gets, he, he gets me in at 4.30 on a Thursday, and he scans my face, and then he just puts me in the chair. Like, I don't even, I don't even remember consenting to this medical procedure. He just puts me in the chair. This is serious enough, you know, and he's just going, he's going to town. It's weird, and it's unpleasant, and I feel very helpless, as you always do at the dentist, um, but it's for my good. And so the next morning I wake up, and I'm feeling great. And my face is like normal again, for the most part. Um, but that's not the end of the story, right? So it's like, that's sort of like God's grace of justification in the gospel. That's why we can trust him, that he is the great surgeon of our souls. He's the great physician. Ha-ha. Uh, but then there's an ongoing, the story goes on, right? The story goes on. It's not, it's going to be ongoing difficulty as well. I'm on antibiotics now, which are not good for you if, to take unless you have an infection. Like, the rest of your body doesn't really like it. The infection hates it, which is great. But, uh, and then I get to go back next week, and he gets to begin to do more good work on my face. Um, and he gets to go in there and, 
you know, drill some holes and take some stuff out that you know, I, I would have liked to have kept if I could. And the root canal, if you've ever, never had one, is pretty unpleasant. It's a pretty unpleasant experience. Um, but I know, and I'm really joyful for next Thursday. I'm joyful to go into this very unpleasant experience because I know it is for my good. Um, it's going to be for my good, and I have a great joy continuing, knowing that I can, he's going to continue to heal me. This person who I trust, this, this reasonably good physician, he's no great physician, but he's a good physician, and I can trust him because I know of what he's done. I've seen the work he's done in the past, I've seen his steadfastness and his goodness towards me, and so I know that he's not, he, that, that I, can, I can trust him. Um, and so if I'm not here next week, it's because I've died of a root canal. Uh, <laughs> But so, this is a quote from John Piper that I heard yesterday. I was just listening to a random sermon. He says, Our affliction, our suffering, is God's infirmary to heal us from the disease of worldliness and to fit us to marvel at Christ when he comes. Or to paraphrase it, right? The storms of life are God's dentist office to heal us from the disease of worldliness and to fit us to marvel at Christ when he comes. And so this final note about David Brainerd um, you know, you might think that David Brainerd was this guy who was just overflowing with enthusiasm and, you know, but uh, he's actually, f- his diary reveals frequently depressed uh, and, and even to the point of, of being suicidal. Um, and this is in an era before there was any real treatment for this, right? This is, this is 1700s. It's a bad time to be depressed. Um, and he didn't soldier on because he's full of energy and like rah, rah, rah confidence in his flesh. Um, he continues to run the race well on the power supplied by his Savior. And he continues on trusting his great King and his great God and the promises of his future grace. And so now, David Brainerd is with God. And along with this great cloud of people that he helped convert, who are his witnesses to his faithful obedience and his trust in God. And so now that his story is over, it's pretty clear that David Brainerd made a pretty good trade. He traded this worldly, ephemeral life and comforts for the eternal comforts of God. And so the application for this text, I think, ultimately, is not just, hey, go be like Jesus, go be a good missionary. Um, It's not just, you know, uh, when the storms come, be very calm. It's trust in Jesus, this this, this God-man, whom even the winds and the sea obey. Um, That we give up our small, self-centered ideas of who we want God to be, He's not just a useful tool to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's not just a good networking tool. He's not just a sage who's giving us good advice on how to live our lives well and good, clean living. He's not here to serve us and to help us build our own little worldly kingdoms. That's not why God is here. We are here, we are here to serve him and to help him build his glorious eternal kingdom. And so... The, the plea of this text would be to, to entrust yourself to this God, knowing that through his Son, he gives eternal life to all those who trust in him, all those who believe in him. And that he's completely in control of every single detail of your life, the, both the good things and the bad things, the joyful things and the sorrowful things, and that he's abounding in steadfast love towards you and toward all his people. And he's working out the details and all the details of our lives together for our good. And at the end of the age, when the curtain drops and the biblical drama is over and all of our stories are over and all of our stories are beginning anew, we will proclaim together with all the saints, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these profound truths about mission, about faith, about your faithfulness. We hope that you would help us to trust in you and to build our lives upon the gospel and the promise of your future grace. Uh, Please help us to break free from the slavery to worldly wisdom that says we need to build our own kingdoms and that success comes through self-determination. Make us foolish for you and for your mission and give us faith in your future deliverance. Um, And most of all, let us be glad and rejoice in your salvation. And we pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.